Hello, all you Lasso fans. This is Peanut Butter and Biscuits, your Ted Lasso fan cast on NPR Illinois Community Voices and the Front Row Network. I'm your host today, Craig, but I'm not joined by my normal co-host, Jeremy Geckner, because uh, we're talking to an author and, you know, Jeremy needs to get on this reading thing more. The person that inspired me to make sure that I start to read not only with my eyes, but also with my ears, that was my co-host from Beyond the Mouse, our Disney theme show, Vanessa Ferguson. So she's joining me today. Hi, Vanessa. Oh, hi. Wow. This is the Ted Lasso podcast that you talk so much about. It's nice here. I like it. It, it is nice. We have nice listeners and it's so great to have you on. And I know that I do maybe talk about Ted Lasso, maybe a little too much. No, no, it's great. You know, I, I love it when people share their passions and you got me onto the show. I watched the whole thing. It's wonderful. Uh, so I'm glad that you have a, a happy place here for everybody to talk about it. Do you have a favorite character or anything? Oh, favorite character. Oh, I, I mean, I, I just, I, I don't know that I can really choose, but I really love Ted. I, I just, the whole time I'm watching the show and I, I shared this with you before is I'm waiting for Ted to snap and he never does. And I've, I went into this thinking like, I'm going to know everything he knows. And then I'm so inspired by how he keeps his cool and how he motivates other people. And I just, he really is just a wonderful, wonderful character and how he deals with his own mental health. That really spoke to me as well. So I, I love Ted. I love Ted too. And you know, uh, it, it's the love of Ted that brought me really to this author because season two had ended. We knew that season three was a long way off. And so I was looking for other pieces of media, other pieces of art, other uh, podcasts or TV shows or books that would really get me kind of that same feeling, or at least in that same mode of kindness, empathy, these types of messages that just really are great. Uh, and so the book that kept coming up on every single list was The House in the Cerulean Sea by TJ Klune. And I started really trying to find that book and I was able to actually get the audiobook of it. And it is such a wonderful companion, I would say, with Ted Lasso. And so it makes sense that it's showing up on all these lists that are like books for Ted Lasso fans. Are you missing Ted Lasso? Read these books. And it is uh, great to have pieces of art and media that you can really feel good about, like good stories, because sometimes our media and culture can be more on the negative side. And I'm not saying that this is a fluffy book by any means. There is conflict in this book. There are things that happen in this book that make situations very tense. But at the foundation of it is kindness, empathy, loving one another, truly. And so I am so excited to bring TJ on to be able to talk about this today. How about you, Vanessa? I'm really excited. You know, you suggested that I uh, read this book because I could finish Ted Lasso. There's nothing else to do but listen to my books again. And I really wasn't sure getting into it what this book was going to be like or how it's going to relate to Ted Lasso. I feel like we should let listeners know who haven't listened to the book yet or read it. It is about uh, magical children that live in an orphanage. So when, as soon as I hear that, I'm like, oh, this is a kid's book, but it's really not. There's lots of humor in it. It's very much an adult book. Um, it's it's a book that I describe as I loved the journey throughout. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't so much concerned with plot points or sometimes uh, in, in my book clubs, we'll try to predict the ending. I, that, that's not what this is about. This is about just the joy you feel reading it. And I was really sad when it was over because I just had such a good time. So I'm really excited to to learn more about the author and, and get to talk to him about some of the characters in the book and the, the magical qualities that he incorporated. Yes, it's not necessarily a direct parallel. You know, you're not taking someone from America and putting them into uh, England and having them coach football over in England. That's not the case, but it is the messages underneath the underlying themes. And so that's what I'm really excited to get into with TJ here. I'll tell you, I'm also uh, reading Under the Whispering Door, which is another novel that just came out from him. And it deals with grief. And so these, these heavy issues in a way that is really relatable. And so I can't recommend him enough. And I can't wait for you to listen to this interview. So let me get out of the way. Here is our interview with TJ Clune. Yeah. 
Hi, TJ. It is so nice to get a chance to talk to you today. I First of all, how are you? I'm super good. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That is so great. And you know, I mentioned uh, when we were getting ready to book this interview that I wanted to talk a bit today about Ted Lasso. And I know you haven't seen the show yet. Highly recommend. Uh, I, <laughs> hopefully by the end of this, I've talked you into it. But you know, your book came to me because it is recommended on so many different lists for Lasso fans. And I think it's because the themes kind of parallel between the two. And so I wanted to know, first off, have you actually heard this? Have you heard that this book is a good companion piece to this particular TV show? Or is this the first time you're hearing multiple that? Multiple times. I've heard that from multiple people. And to be honest, I I, I think that there's it, there's that kind of connection and, and the fact that both of these have been, the book and the show have been talked about. It's because for some reason, the idea of books or, or media about kindness are somewhat of a novelty that, that we don't get to see that kind of stuff very often. And so when something does come out and it, and it hits... And it, it resonates with a with a large group of people. You know, there's always this note of surprise, like, "Oh, I didn't know that that books could be about nice things or about kindness. I didn't know TV shows didn't need to have anybody die and 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 you know all these big action set pieces where all these terrible things happen." It's just funny to think that we we need to be reminded that good things exist and we're allowed to be happy and and celebrate good things. Well, especially in the time that we are and living through the time that we are and, and, and even in media, we just came through kind of the Walter White, the age of the antihero, right? Mm -hmm. Where, uh, and, and so it's nice to see a character like Ted Lasso or in your book, like Linus, that we can really start to root for. And so I'm going to chime in every now and then with some different themes from the TV show that I think parallel the book as well. And the first one I wanted to really touch on was this idea of empathy. And I find it remarkable how empathetic ultimately Linus is in your story, even when it's he's almost like a bureaucrat, just quote unquote, doing his job. You mm -hmm. can still see that message of empathy that just resonates throughout him in his past experiences going into these orphanages and really uh, knowing that his role is something that can have a positive impact on people mm -hmm. and, and really feeling their uh, presence as well. So I wanted to know, uh, was that a particular focus going into the writing of this story? It was because if, again, it kind of goes to the idea, if you don't have a, a character to root for, then, you know, you're not going to find enjoyment in the book. With Linus, he, at the very beginning, he is a bureaucrat, but to me more so he is a cog in a bureaucratic machine. He is stuck in a rut. He's been doing this job for well over a decade, almost two. But the difference between him and the corporate culture or the cubicle hell that he finds himself in is that he actually does care about mm -hmm. all of the people he comes into contact with. And I think that sets him apart from his, his colleagues because with him, idea of his job as being a social worker, the idea of his job is to go into these orphanages to check to make sure that the children are safe, that they're being that they are being raised properly, that there are no issues. And if he does find issues, not necessarily with the children, but with the the management of these homes, that's when his he has to make a, a decision whether or not that these places must remain open or they must close. He has this empathy built into him, but the problem with that is buried under so much of bureaucratic red tape because he knows how the world is. He knows that there is beauty in the world, but he lives this colorless life where the only, the only moments of sunshine that he has are when he's interacting with these children. And mm -hmm. I think that that really adds to his character to show that while he may be this cog in the machine, he's doing the best job he can with the tools that he has. Absolutely. Vanessa, you had the next question. When I first started reading the book, I, you know, I thought it might be a children's book. I, I went in very much not knowing what this was going to be mm -hmm. about. And I learned very quickly through the dialogue that this is definitely uh, a book for a slightly more mature audiences. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to give this adult book some of its magical qualities? So when I wrote this book, I was not thinking about children in mind. My previous books are not meant for children. They have adult content, whether it be language or other adult things that happen. It's just with this, I knew when I was writing about children, these children in particular, that it was going to be a different type of story. The, but I, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think that the first draft of this book 
quite captured what I was going for because I, I was using a whole bunch of language that, norm, that is not in the book now. And I remember my editor came to me and she said, look, you have two instances of the F word in this book. If you removed those two instances of that word, this will open up the book to a wider audience because parents or guardians, they'll go into a library or a bookstore and they will ask, is this book appropriate for kids? Can kids read this book? And a good librarian or bookseller will say, well, here are some of the things that you might want to talk about beforehand, or here's some language that you might find objectionable. So I was like, okay, a children's author though? Is that really what I am? Is that really who I want to be? So I said, you know what, why not? Let's just see what happens. So we edited certain parts out and, and I will tell you that this book came out in March of 2020, right when the pandemic was kicking into gear. And uh, a, few, a few months after that, say into the fall of 2020, I got this email. And this email was from a dad. And at the very top, he wrote in brackets, I am now going to be dictating exactly what my nine-year-old son is telling me. What followed was a block of like stream of consciousness dialogue from this kid who was telling him how, how who was telling me how much he loved the book because it made him, it didn't make him feel as lonely as he had been. Because oh, of the man. pandemic, oh, wow. he hadn't been able to go see his friends. But having friends like Chauncey and Fee and Sal, he was able to feel a bit of happiness. And at the very end of this email, he asked, would you like to see my Chauncey costume? And of course, I wrote back, not thinking that I was talking to a nine-year-old child. I wrote back, hell yes, I want to see the Chauncey costume. He <laughs> <laughs> sent a second email going, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Ignore that. I got the, I got a, a response. And this kid, man, this, this, this awesome little boy, he was wearing, if, for people who don't know, Chauncey in this book, he's my favorite character. He's a literal ball of sunshine. He is a green blobby boy with red lips and black teeth and tentacles for arms with suction cups on them. He has foot long stalks on the top of his head that, that have his eyeballs on the top. And he's been told his whole life that he's a monster and that nobody mm -hmm. will, nobody will want to be with him. And his one wish, his one wish is to be a bellhop. He wants to be a bellhop in a hotel, not because he thinks it's cool, not because he wants to wear the hat, even though that's part of it, but because he wants to help people. And so this kid, he's wearing, in this picture, he's wearing head to toe green bodysuit, like a lime green bodysuit. He has suction cups attached to his arms. He has painted toilet paper holders on the top of his head and uh, golf balls with painted eyes sitting on top of that. And that's when I knew that I was a freaking children's author, man, <laughs> because, because that I learned early on that words have power, but yes. when you get to see the evidence of that power, it is one of the most humbling things in the world. And to know that my words were able to help this one kid, at least not feel so sad for a little while, that's more than I could have ever asked for. Absolutely. You know, uh, chiming in a little bit, first of all, with your instances of the, the F word that you edited out, I will say that there is a character, again, I'm trying to sell you on this. It's a character named Roy Kent. He is like a, uh, a master craftsman in the mm -hmm. F word. It is fantastic. <laughs> uh, but that I'll is also... my favorite word of all time. And so when <laughs> I have to cut it, I'm like, oh, this hurts. This hurts. But maybe children shouldn't hear that word necessarily. <laughs> After this interview, just YouTube Roy Kent F word, and it'll come up with I like, a, definitely a, do that. it'll come up with all the instances. It's just so fantastic. But, you know, I wanted to uh, talk a bit about your children's author versus uh, adult. I almost feel like this is the perfect book for middle schoolers to read because I remember how lost I felt during that time of your life where you're kind of losing some of that childhood innocence and you're trying to get into more adult things. You're trying to grow up too fast. And I feel like, you know, uh, Vanessa and I were talking about this right before the uh, interview that we, I couldn't remember if it was on the Cerulean Sea or in the Cerulean Sea. And I, I like actually the instance of using in the Cerulean Sea in the title, because it's almost like at some time, at some point in that adolescent years, you're almost 
in the cerulean sea yourself like mm-hmm. you are someone that feels like that outsider that needs someone like linus or needs someone like arthur to be able to uh help guide you into those future years so maybe i'm getting a little bit too deep or too into it but that's kind of the feeling that i get while, while no, you're, reading you're, this you're, book. you're actually bang on with that because when you think about it, when you were a kid, like take me, for example, I grew up in a very poor rural rural area of Oregon. And I was the loudmouth kid with ADA, undiagnosed ADHD. And I was effeminate too. I moved my hands all the time. So you can imagine how well that would go over in a rural setting, especially in the nineties. So I know what it feels like to have that otherness, that something that that is intrinsically in you that sets you apart from your peers and doesn't make and doesn't allow you to feel like you can relate to them. Mm-hmm. And, and that happens more often than we think with kids. It doesn't necessarily need to be about queerness or a medical diagnosis like I have. There is just this sense of otherness that we sometimes hold in ourselves that we feel that we can't that if we try to relate to people, it's only going to blow up in our faces and that that we will end up on the losing side of things. And with these kids, knowing what they had been through, I pretty early on curtailed the idea of basically making trauma porn for this because mm-hmm. that, it could have easily gone in that direction. I could have gone into great detail about what the past had done to these people and this community as a whole, but that's not what this book is about. This book is about healing. This book is about showing that sometimes, and and with the subsequent novel, Under the Whispering Door, uh, that book details grief, but both have the idea in mind that sometimes it's okay not to be okay. And that if 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 you're not okay, it's okay to use your voice to say that you're not okay, to tell people that you're not okay, to try and get help. Maybe everything won't be cured right away, but that first step is one of the hardest. And I know that's how it was for me because it felt like when I was a kid, like my brain was on fire. I couldn't focus. I was the kid, I was basically the ADHD stereotype that that you think about. I couldn't sit still, I wouldn't shut up. My brain never, would never quiet. I've gotten older, that hasn't gone away because ADHD is not something that it can be cured nor does it need to be because I'm not broken. I just tend to think a little bit differently than anyone else. And that's what that's what I wanted to go with these characters with these books that they have been told they're a certain way for their entire lives, but what if they were given a place where they could decide who they could be rather than what they were told? Yeah. Wow, yeah. and powerful stuff. So I am glad that you brought up the character of Chauncey and that, that he's one of your favorites because it is one of my is favorites. My favorite. I, yeah. He's your favorite. Yeah. I And I also love Talia. It's it's like I can't choose between mm-hmm. the two of them. But, you know, we learned very early on in the book that the child Lucy, which is short for Lucifer, is the Antichrist. So as we are learning about other characters in the book, I, you know, I was thinking there's no way he's going to be able to top this like that, that. But then each magical character we meet is so delightful. And there are still some surprises as the book goes on. So uh, that's all I'm going to say about that because I want I want people to read the book. I don't want to give too much away. But were there any magical characters that didn't make it into the book? Because each one was just so awesome. I just I kind of like wanted to hear more of what you were able to create. Yeah, there was there were I, early on. Lucy was always going to be Lucy. He was mm-hmm. one of the first voices I heard when I when I when this book was coming into my head because that's how it happens for me. I will be just minding my own business. And then all of a sudden a character I've never heard before starts talking in my head. And sometimes they'll go away after if I don't pay them too much attention, but other times they become extraordinarily insistent. And that's how I know that there's a book there. Lucy was very, very insistent that I write this book. And I knew going in with the idea of the Antichrist and writing a book about kindness, that those are two disparate things that that some people might not be able to, to understand what I'm trying to do with that. But the the whole idea of Lucy in general was the idea of nature versus nurture. That if you are born and told you are going to be a certain way, if it is in your blood, if you have been prophesized for thousands of years to be this terrible, monstrous thing, what would happen if that was a six-year-old boy? And what would that look like if he, instead of being told he was going to destroy everything, was told he could decide who he wants to be? So Lucy was always going to be there. But with the other children, there was some um, playing around. For for instance, uh, Talia for, for a little while was going to be what's known as a Selkie, 
which is basically this, um, this mythical creature that is almost like a seal that can remove its seal skin to become human. And they carry the skin with them wherever they go. Um, that Sal was not going to be a, <laughs> I have to tell you, he was, I knew going into it that he was going to be some kind of uh, shifter, that he would be able to change his shape. But the idea of this quiet guy who loved to write becoming something like a wear Pomeranian. I don't even yeah. know how that happened. All <laughs> so I know perfect. is just, I just had this idea of what if he just turned into a fluffy little dog? What would happen? What would that be like for him? So that's how, that's how that came about. Chauncey was always going to be an unknown. I, I Chauncey, as soon as Lucy started talking, I heard this wet sponge filled voice start talking to you along. And that was always going to be Chauncey and Fee. I wanted her to have a connection with another sprite on the island. So when I decided, or another connection with another person on the island. So when I decided that there would be the character of Zoe Chapelway, I went and turned and made uh, Fee a different kind of sprite. And last, but certainly not least, is Theodore. And Theodore is a wyvern. And that was always going to be, that was pretty much planned from the beginning too, because I liked the idea of something that I had never really thought about before, which is um, something called uh, receptive bilingualism, which is essentially a person can speak their own language. And now my dog is here. Hello. Sorry. <laughs> uh, he can speak his own language and he can understand other languages, but he can't necessarily speak those languages too. So mm. Theodore has his wyvern way of speaking that everybody can speak and learns to speak for him and he can understand them, but he can't speak that English. And I just love that idea of having a character that people, instead of him having to learn to communicate with them, they learn his language to communicate with him. Yeah. That's also Very wonderful. Cool. I, I kind of want to go back to this idea of it's okay to not be okay. You know, the, the show Lasso really tackles this idea in the second season. It focuses so much on mental health. And mm -hmm. I think that's great. And that, one of the reasons why I think it's such a huge hit is because of the timing of when it has come out. And so I'm interested in what you do for your headspace and to try to uh, focus or to try to uh, make yourself feel like you're in a better spot. I'll, I'll tell you, mine really became uh, things like listening to podcasts, doing these types of interviews, and then also running. I, I've been running like crazy this last year and a half or so, but I'm wondering what it is that you do. Is it writing for you that can really do this or is it something else that you do as well? Sometimes writing is a way that I quiet the voices in my head, but mm. every now and then as happens with anybody, I would think no matter what job you do, sometimes the words just don't come out. And I, instead of, I've learned, I learned early on in my writing career that, that to sit there and to try to force the words to come out would only end up making me aggravated. And then I get mad at myself. My, my whole idea, how I clear my head is I walk away from everything. I don't, I don't look at my computer. I don't look at my phone. I take my dog. I live in a small town in Virginia and I take my dog out into the woods and we will just spend a day out there. And I will, but the, the one thing that I do that, that still tethers me to my work is for each book, Cerulean C, for example, I create huge playlists of songs that go with them. And so whenever I'm not with the book, I'm listening to the music for the for that book itself. So that way I'm still enmeshed in the world while still being able to get some distance from it. Yeah, you need you know, to, oh, go ahead. I was Vanessa. gonna say this, I have this question later, but I'd love to hear it now. Uh, so there is a lot of music in this book. There's yeah. songs uh, by uh, Chuck Berry and I think- Frank Big Sinatra's Bopper, Richie yeah. Allen's, Buddy Holly, all of Exactly. Yeah. Everly Brothers. Are those the songs that are on your playlist mm -hmm. or are, do you have any other songs on the, Oh on my playlist? God. I have I, the house in the Cerulean sea playlist was almost 500 songs long. Um, and oh, wow. th the, the reason that I chose that music was because it's like Lucy says, it's dead people music. And when you, I love, I, I'm going to sound like such a freaking hipster. I love records. I love <laughs> the sound from records. I love how the music sounds from a record because it's not overly produced and, and synthesized within an inch of its life like music on the radio is. When you're listening to a record, there's always this subtle hiss below it. And it sounds like ghosts. It sounds like dead people music. And it can be eerie when you're listening to 
a song like about the day the music died, which is of course about uh, the the deaths of Big Bopper and, and Buddy Holly in that plane crash. And that, that music just has such a timeless quality to it that it was, it felt perfect to fit with this book because this is a book that is almost out of time in that there's no specific year, there's no cell phones, no television mentioned, but there are computers. And it's just this idea of this mishmash of, of time periods that I wanted, to, because to me in all great fairy tales, you don't need a, a time for that to happen. It could happen anytime. It could be anywhere. I was just going to ask too. So, you know, Lucy's favorite songs are like Bobby Darren and, and the mm-hmm. ones you've mentioned. What are your favorite songs to play on vinyl? Because vinyl's in now. It's oh, any. It's any I, oh, yeah, I know. I know. You could <laughs> you could tell that too when you go to certain stores and you see their record players that are for thousands upon thousands of dollars now. Just but <laughs> yeah. Um, my favorite. Oh man, that's a tough one. Or or Probably, favorites. Yeah, Everly Brothers are are right up there. Bobby Darren. Beyond the Sea, his song, that song, yes. it was later covered by uh, Frank Sinatra, Old Blue mm-hmm. Eyes. But the Bobby Darren version is just, I don't know, just when, when it opens up, you know, with the with the horns and everything, and then there's just this bouncy beat. And in my head, as it shows in the book, Lucy is doing his dishes, bouncing along to the song. And I could see how he'd be bouncing along to that song because I know him and I know what kids look like when they do, you know, when they're happy about something like that. Um, And that type of music, it just, that's what I grew up listening to. I grew up listening to records and, and granted (laughs) a lot of it was uh, White Snake and Michael Jackson (laughs) (laughs) because my parents had very interesting tastes, but my grandmother had older records and I got to hear, I got to hear these, I got to hear dead people music. And yeah. it has entranced me ever since. It's kind of morbid to think of it that way, but old records to me always sound like ghosts. Buddy Holly was uh, Buddy Holly was mine. I had this. I, I sort of discovered him in high school, and now uh, I have a bunch of playlists of Buddy Holly. I just absolutely love his music, and uh, the gift that he gave us in such a short amount of time is just mm-hmm. absolutely incredible. Yeah. And I still contend he would be known as the king of rock and roll had he outlived Elvis. You know what I mean? No, like he's absolutely, so- absolutely. You're like not knocking Elvis, obviously. He right, is exactly. The king, exactly. But but yes, had had so many things could have gone differently had they not gotten on that plane. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, you know, bringing back to the book and to the show and the parallels that I can find in them, the, the book does such a great job of inspiring readers to keep their cool while dealing with adversity. It's sort of this lesson that I can't control how you act, only how I react to that. And that that mm-hmm. is such a wise way to look at things. And I wonder, what are your thoughts about weaving these types of life lessons into your story? Was that an intention to put in some teachable moments or are there teachable moments that present themselves while writing your book? Right. I, I, I worked very hard to make this book not sound like I was dispensing cookie or fortune cookie advice. Cause that's, that's not, it can be easily taken that way. If, if, you know, it could be beating you over the head with, Things can be good if you only try to make them good. You know, I don't, I didn't want it to be like that. But at the same time, we have to learn. Maybe, maybe, maybe not necessarily learn, but relearn these things. We need to relearn how to have, I mean, I try to, I am, when I speak to readers, I try to stay apolitical because, you know, some readers do not like when you talk politics. However, I always rebut that with, I'm a queer man living in the United States. My entire life is a political talking point. There are people who decide whether or not I can get married. Yeah. And that only happened in 2015. That was seven years ago. So when, when we think about the, in the face of adversity and, and trying to remain calm and level-headed, that is a great idea. But it doesn't always work like that. I can be evidence of that. My my problem is when I get frustrated, when I get angry, I'm the type of person that will just start crying for no freaking reason whatsoever. I am I am an angry crier. I'm like, you did this to me. But as I've gotten older, I've realized that things get to me because I let them get to me, because I take them personally, because I choose 
to let it affect me. And you can't, no matter what you do, no matter who you are, there's always going to be somebody who doesn't like you. And that's not on you. That's on them. And the way I figure, you know, that might be a, a interesting way to deal with the idea of bigotry and whatnot. But these people who shout, they're so desperate to be heard that they don't even hear themselves. And it's, I remember being 19 years old and going to my first gay pride in Tucson, Arizona, and standing on the street corner with a next near a preacher who was holding up signs saying we were all going to hell. That his, his so-called men and women of God standing around him shouting curses, shouting basically spitting homophobia at us while we were there to celebrate. And what's so interesting about that, I mean, that's not unique, that happens everywhere. But Tucson, it is particularly interesting that that happens given that Tucson Pride started in the 70s because a queer man was beaten and murdered and his four young uh, murderers were let off with a slap on the wrist. The next year, that's why Tucson Pride came into being. So when I go to Pride, my first time, after coming out and, and, and feeling like myself for the first time to see people there with their bullhorns and their signs waving a Bible. To me, if the idea of God and God does exist, then either A, he loves us all and those people are crazy, or he's an absolute psycho. And those are, those are his emissaries. And I'll tell you what, if I, I choose to believe the former, if that is what is waiting for us all, but if, if the latter is true, then he deserves those people. <laughs> it just is blasphemy. Yes. It, well, no, you know, it's <laughs> no, just so, you're, you're right. Well, it's just so, uh, it's so incredible how you can weave these types of ideas into your story and not beat people over the head. And, you know, I think, I think Ted would agree with you on a lot of things. Although whenever he references God, he always says, she, uh, yeah. which, which, <laughs> on the other, which I think, which I love as well, but you know, it's just, uh, it, it's just remarkable. And I think that this book does such a wonderful job of not beating you over the head with these ideas as does the show. And I think that that's why these things can work and you can really get some true life lessons about kindness and empathy and, uh, giving others the space to be themselves and giving you the space to be yourself as well. Those are such values that we could all use so much. And so that's why I love, uh, I loved diving into this book. And that's why I'm, I'm loving you, the other book I'm reading. Uh, and, and just, it, it's incredible how you're putting these values into these books. Thank you. It's, I think that, you know, did Ted Lasso started in 2020, correct? It did. Yeah. Yeah. So House of the Australian Sea, as I said before, came out in 2020. It came out right at the beginning of the pandemic. So I think that people, okay, let's, let's be frank here. Everybody was going out and buying 6 million t rolls of toilet paper for reasons uh -huh. that I still don't understand. <laughs> and, and at the same time, I'm sitting here going, hey, I know everything is scary right now, but I wrote a book about kindness and the Antichrist. Would you like to read it? And it's, I think that the reason that people glommed onto the book and, and to the show in the way they have is because it brought, them, it brought them a sense of safety. It brought them a sense of comfort when the world outside was on fire. And I know how that feels to be comforted. I know how I felt when I was a kid and I read Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones for the first mm -hmm. time. I know how that felt to be transported away from a place where I felt like I didn't matter to a place where magic was possible. And I think that in this time, maybe maybe years from now, we'll look back on Ted Lasso, we'll look back on the house in this really see with rose tinted glasses saying, well, it was, it was pandemic related. Of course, that's what we wanted. It wasn't as good as we remembered. But I like to think that no matter what time period we're in, we could all use the reminder that there is good out there, that there can be happiness, that everything doesn't need to be terrible just because that's what we hear on the news every single day, or that's what people in power want us to believe, that there is so much more out there than, than we see, and we only and the only thing that's keeping us from it is us taking the chance to go look for it. You know, though, I, I, I don't think that that's going to be the case, and it's because the 
if you think about it, like we have needed these types of messages for so long, basically mm -hmm. for my entire life. I could, a lot of people point, pinpoint to 2016 and to the election and to politics. Yep. It was, it was just as bad. Uh, things were boiling up well before that. It, mm -hmm. And just, I, you can point back to different instances throughout all of our lives. And you could say that we needed kindness in those moments. We needed to choose that kindness. And so that's mm -hmm. why I think it's a, a universal message. And I do think, yes, I maybe popularity wise, timing helped prop up some mm -hmm. of these um, pieces of media that dealt with kindness. But at the same time, it's messages that I think we're always going to need to hear. And so uh, I, I, I think you'll, I think we will find that these are going to be long lasting pieces that we can return to. And uh, certainly when my child is going through those middle school years, this is going to be one of those pieces that I would want him to pick up and just to explore those ideas, because I think it matters so much that you're putting these words on paper and allowing us to read and remind ourselves that kindness is something we really need uh, as well. It is. It, it, if you think about it too, the the fact that, again, that these are somewhat novelty is, is just extraordinary. C considering the fantasy genre as a whole, I mean, for a long time, it's been a straight white male game and it's been tending towards grimdark, you know, the George R.R. Mm -hmm. Martin's Game of Thrones kinds of fantasy stories where everybody betrays everyone else and then lops off their heads. And I, the House in the Cerulean Sea, I wanted it to remind me of the books I read as a kid, where, yeah. where I did think of, of mag I did think that magic was possible, that wonder was a thing that existed, that we could, that we hadn't yet lost our filter and replaced it with a mask of cynicism. And I think it's important to, to not even necessarily beat people over the head with it, but it can serve as a gentle reminder that that it doesn't have to be this way. I I, I just the problem with that, though, unfortunately, is that some people actively choose to to be <laughs> jerks. And yeah. those are the types of people that you wish all the best for and then move on. Because as much as it sucks to say, some people like where they are in terms yeah. of, of the darkness. And I don't. I, I am I the type of person who could who could scoff and, and bemoan politics of, of at any point? Yes, on either side of the aisle. Of course I can. I'm a rational thinking person and I see there's wrongs on both sides. But I just I want people to remember that we are actively choosing to show ourselves as yeah. this certain way. The past, however long you want to say, hell, you don't even have to say it was 2016. We'll go before that when Obama was elected and people were like, oh, well, now racism is over because we have a black president. After gay marriage was legalized, oh, well, now homophobia is over because everybody can do what straight people can. That's not how it works. That's <laughs> yeah. not how it works. If anything, that's only going to get make people on the opposite side of whatever, the bigoted people, more inflamed and more incensed. And you know, it's an old adage and it may be a bit trite, but kill them with kindness, man. You kill yeah. them with kindness because if you are kind in the face of screams, what are they going to do? They're going to tire themselves out. Their voices are going to go hoarse and eventually they'll just go away. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I will say that uh, we, you know, we are analyzing the book and we're picking these messages out. I don't think the book uh, hits you over the head with any of this. And, and part of the reason is that is because of the humor in the book. Um, I, this, I really cannot think of a book uh, in the last few years that I have laughed out loud while reading it oh. or listening to it. It's hysterical. Lucy, Talia, Chauncey, they, they seem, uh, Talia especially. So some of the funniest lines in this book. And I, and I think it's, um, my love of dark humor too, mm -hmm. that, that I really love. So can, can you tell us about the use of humor in, in building these characters in the book? Yeah. So this, and I'm glad, I'm, I'm very happy that you said dark humor, because if you, you know, granted it's part of the packaging, but if you look at the book itself, you see it's all sunshine and the covers all pretty and beautiful and it looks like a, a like a comfy sweater with the thumb holes in it but for me this book is that comfy sweater but it's also one where there might be a pin still stuck in the sweater and it'll poke you when you least expect it because yeah. there, this is there is that humor and it is I don't want to say it's pitch black but it is it is a dark form of comedy given the fact that these children are you know, young, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, and you have, uh, or 
in Talia's case, 200 and something years old, and she is wanting to bury people in her garden to use them as fertilizer. Lucy is wanting to go to the graveyard when they're in town to see if they can dig anybody up. He talks about how he got in trouble for having a bird skull under his bed. And it's that kind of humor. I think it's a, a interesting contrast to the warm fluffiness of the overarching themes of the book itself over the, the kindness is that I wanted to dig a little. I wanted to poke a little just so you can't, just so a reader is kept on their toes with they're thinking they're getting one story that all of a sudden Talia threatens to murder half the people in town. You realize you're getting a different kind of story in addition to having the happy story. Yeah. And I hear you saying Talia, I think in the audiobook, I think he says Talia, but I could be totally oh, wrong on that. I switch back and forth between the two. Okay, all perfect. The all the perfect. time. I do that. Yeah, all the time. I switch back and forth between the two. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so perfect. We, we, need to, we need to write Audible here, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, Daniel Henning, who did the audio. Yeah. He, if, if you've listened okay. to it, you know he is a master. At yeah, he's, what so, he did, he's so great. And he is those voices. He is those characters mm. for the rest of my life. <laughs> I told great. myself I wasn't going to do this, but... Um, every time he would do Chauncey and I'm like, Oh my God. Like I start, as I was recommending the book to everybody, I'm like, please listen to the, to the audio books just so you can hear him go Chauncey. <laughs> so, he's, uh, so, he's so good because he's just so he has, he has a theater background. So of course he's very theatrical and it's just this kind of production needed that theatricality. Yeah. We'll send yeah, him our absolutely. compliments for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, I, I don't know if you know this, but there in researching this book and, and learning about you, there's quite a bit of fan art for these characters oh, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. as well. What does that make you feel like when, when you see people yeah, it's, doing it's, that? It does, it, I have had fan art done over the course of my career for almost every single one of my books. It still feels like the first time when I get to see it, it when I get an email from a reader it still feels like the first email that I've gotten because the fact that I wrote something that inspired other people to create is just, it's mind boggling, man. And yeah, all you have to do is Google House of Mistrency art and you will see thousands of pieces of art, all different interpretations of what the characters look like. And I, I love how people can read the same lines in a book and have a different interpretation. I think that's fantastic. And it's it's humbling to know that you wrote something that other people loved that much and that they wanted to create, and, or they wanted, even at the very least, they wanted to take time to write you an email. My first book came out in 2011. The next day I got an email from a reader in Europe who had read the book overnight and wrote it to me. I still have that email framed because it was the first piece of fan mail that I ever got. And when my, before my first book came out, I told myself if I made a difference to at least one person, then I'll have done my job. And the next day I got that letter and I said, okay, well, I'm done now. Retiring. Right. Yeah. Retiring. But yeah. to get to see the fan art, to see people drawing because of something I did, it's just, it makes me feel like how I, how I would have thought that maybe someone like Diane Jones would have felt, Diana Wynne Jones would have felt had I told her that Howl's Moving Castle made me want to create. Yeah. And, and that's, that's why we talk to our listeners all the time. And it's like, please, goodness, engage with us, message us. And yeah. it just means so, so much when you're putting something out into the world and then you get a response back. It's just, uh, it's just an incredible feeling. But I, I do want to uh, go into one more theme that I, I love about the parallels between Lasso and this particular book. And that's that you focus uh, enough on the tertiary characters that we feel like we really enjoy those characters and we know something about them. For some reason, I have this connection to Merle the Ferryman. Yeah, uh, I, I really, I really so love weird. that dude. Uh, yeah, and he's he's one of my favorite characters. But how do you balance your writing to spotlight those stories and not take necessarily the main focal point off of the children and off of Linus? For me, if I'm going to introduce a character, they have to play a part. They can't just be there for window dressing. They cannot be there just to have a specific line that that will get a reaction. They have to actually play a part, not only to the the certain section that they're in the story but to the overall themes which is why you have say like the ice cream shop owner or helen's nephew at the towards the towards the end of the book no spoilers but you have them and they they only have uh, a few uh pages 
dedicated to them, they may not have very many lines of dialogue at all, but you get a very clear instance of who they are as people from their short time. I've always had the, the tendency to love my side characters maybe a little bit more than I should. <laughs> but um, to me, if you're going to, if, you're, if I'm going to include a character, they have to be there for a purpose. They have to have a purpose. And Merle, he is, he is this ornery jerk who, who runs the ferry that goes between the village and the island and every trip, is, oh, the prices are increased. Petrol is going up. Yeah, my, <laughs> my rates have doubled, my rates have tripled. And his, the, what I like about him is that he is consistent. <laughs> he doesn't have character growth. He's a jerk at the beginning. He's kind of a jerk at the end, <laughs> but he's not cruel. He's not, there's a difference between being a jerk and being cruel, I think. Can, can you be a jerk and be cruel? Yes. Can you be cruel and be a jerk? Yes. Can you be a jerk without being cruel? Yeah, I think so. And he's just a jerk. But I like him because there's like, there's this funny little interplay between him and Arthur and Zoe and Linus. Like they know, they know that, that Merle is full of crap. They know that, but they still, they still use the fairy just because it is part of that human connection. And to me, even though it's not spelled out in the book, to me, I think the reason they kept using the fairy as they did was not for them, but for Merle to give him a yeah. little bit of company every now and then. That's kind of how I, that's sort of how I, I, I thought of it as well. And, you know, uh, just making a suggestion here, maybe it's only for an audience of one, but if you want to expand your uh, Cluniverse to include a novella of Merle meeting Hugo, uh, I think that I would really drink that. I don't know that anybody else would, but <laughs> that would be awesome. I, I also, I, yeah, I'll add that to my list that, that also has a, um, a series of novellas where Chauncey gets to be a bellhop at a hotel and has to solve really small mysteries. <laughs> I, 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 kid question. You not, I kid you not. That was the next question that Vanessa was going to say. Uh, can we... <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> can we have a follow-up series about Chauncey as a bellhop, please. I, I need like, this in my life. Like, and I'm not thinking of like, Oh, there's been a murder. I'm thinking like, Oh no, somebody left a stain on the carpet. Who was it? And then Chauncey would just have to go and find it out. He'd put on, he'd take off his bellhop cap and put on a little detective hat. And I'd go through the hotel interviewing suspects. And it's just, yes. I would love that. I think that's so funny. Just the, obviously the reason is, is that Chauncey is a literal ball of sunshine and I want to spend every waking moment with him. <laughs> me too. Me too. Well, since you took that question from me, I'll ask a different one. Okay. So the, <laughs> The older I get, the, just the more I enjoy realistic relationships in books. I, I'm, I'm just even like the romantic ones. I, I'm really over like the fairy tale ones where it's like the prince and the princess and they have this big kiss and they run away together. It's just not realistic to me. And I and I um, really appreciate the it's like the sweet fondness and this comfort that you kind of watch unfold throughout mm -hmm. the book and, and between the characters of, of Linus and Arthur. So can, can you kind of share? with us your thoughts on on how you build these realistic relationships between your characters if you didn't know that going into this book that Linus and Arthur would end up together or that there was a romance involved it might have taken you by surprise to to see that that this connection between between Linus and Arthur and what I love about them is you're right they they are not the idealized romantic fiction heroes because let's face it Linus is not does not have six-pack abs and and a name like Blaze Steel or something like that he is he's Linus <laughs> Baker he's fussy he's overweight and he has thinning hair and he's a bureaucrat I love the idea of unsuspecting people getting their own stories do you get to see romance between queer men in their 40s no you don't you do not get to see that you do if the romance for whatever reason, is solely focused on people in their 20s or, or younger because YA romance, you have that too. But life doesn't stop <laughs> in your 20s. Life doesn't stop in your 30s. And the queerness of this book, this book is extraordinarily queer, but it's not in your face about it. It is, it is subtle because that's how I wish the world was. I wish we didn't have to make these big, huge proclamations of, oh, I'm gay. And, and, and have it be having need to explain 
who we are to people who who want us to. This book, there's no big coming out scene. There is no, there is no, I'm I'm gay and this is who I am and blah. It it's just part of them. It's it's part of them as a person because I'm gay, I'm queer. That doesn't define me. My AD, I have ADHD, that doesn't define me. It's just part of who I am. Like being queer is part of who I am. And that's what I wanted to show with this because there are bigger things at play here that what would be the point of homophobia? Homophobia is so boring. What <laughs> Do you really think this day and age that you're hurting my feelings? No, you're not. You're just showing your whole ass. That's what you are. That's who you are as a person. And that yeah. doesn't affect me. The only thing that I feel sorry for is that if you have kids, who have to hear that kind of stuff yeah. because no kid should ever have to hear anything resembling bigotry, no matter what form that comes in. And I just, I don't know this, this idea of two men in their forties finding each other in a place where they are allowed to grow as much as children are, because let's face it, yes, Linus is a bureaucrat and whatnot, but Arthur also has issues. He has his secrets. He has his, own trauma that he has to work through. And the fact that he's able to do that with Linus is, I just love that. I just love them. I love my soft gay dads and their gremlins that they live with. <laughs> <laughs> we love them too. You know, I've, uh, this, this has been incredible. We have a few more questions left yeah. and starting to wrap some of those up. I, I mentioned earlier, I'm about halfway through under the whispering door and it's, it's so, uh, amazing how it, it takes, this protagonist who you don't necessarily want to root for and is very much a jerk. And you're like, you know, I, I, I can start seeing the layers as we move along the story. And it's also about grief and mm -hmm. just these, these concepts that are like, they can be really difficult to deal with in our normal life. But I'm wondering uh, what future stories you might want to tell or things that you might be working on. Yes. So, um, this summer sees the conclusion of my queer YA superhero series. It's called Heat Wave, and it's the final book in that. Next year is the third and final book in the Unofficial Kindness trilogy, which started with The House in the Cerulean wow. Sea, which, which then went on to Under the Whispering Door. It is um, not related to the previous two books. It is a different kind of story. It is a queer retelling of Pinocchio. Oh, um, and it is about kindness. House in the Cerulean Sea was about showing kindness to others. Under the Whispering Door was about turning that kindness inward and being kind to yourself, even if you don't think you deserve it. This last book called In the Lives of Puppets is about showing kindness to someone who might not deserve it. Someone who arguably has done something terribly wrong and is maybe by no fault of their own, but it is about forgiveness and it's about showing kindness to people who cannot be kind to themselves. They don't know how to be. And it's just, when I wrote these three books, I didn't know where we'd be today. Obviously no one could. Mm. We are two years into a pandemic. And if you had told me in March of 2020 that we would still be in the middle of all this, I wouldn't have believed you. But it's so strange then that I'm able to give a book like The House in the Cerulean Sea and have it come out at the beginning of the pandemic. I'm a, I gave you a book the, under the whispering door, hopefully <laughs> what's at the end of the pandemic, but to remind you that we have to grieve. I don't know that mm -hmm. we've allowed ourselves to grieve over the past few years. And I think that when it's, when it's gonna hit, it's gonna hit hard. Then with this last book, In the Lives of Puppets, I'm hoping that the world is in a different place by the time it comes out in March of 2023. But if it's not, then this book will be there again to remind you that the world is wider and more mysterious than we could ever possibly imagine. Just yeah. amazing. So before we start to wrap things up, I have to know about your favorite lines in the book. I, I, I have so many, I, I should have gone back and like <laughs> written them all out. One that uh, stuck with me was like Talia saying something like, um, I like being round. It means there's more of me to love. And, and anytime she threatens Linus, by the way, yeah. like, I feel like I need to write those down and, and just say them to my friends. Uh, mm -hmm. But what are some of your favorite lines in this I book? I think I think what Vanessa is saying in this whole interview is that if uh, ever this becomes a film adaptation, she's auditioning for this role. I think I will that grow a beard. <laughs> I will do it. Please let me be a gnome. Well, you should probably get to working on that soon. 
Yeah. I'll just say oh, that quietly. Oh, okay. Ah, okay. Okay. All right. All right. That's but, fine. But um, uh, Chauncey saying, "I'm a boy," I think, <laughs> and looking down at himself, <laughs> cracked me up. Lucy, I think, towards the end, is my favorite line of all when he says that there's magic in the ordinary. Yeah. And when he's talking to Linus and he tells him that there's magic in the ordinary, there was another line came after that, that we cut just because it was kind of beating you over the head with it a little bit where, where Lucy continues on saying, and you might be the most magical of us all, just because of the fact that he's celebrating what he perceives as Linus's ordinariness. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one other line and I have it right. Cause I just did a reading from it last night. Um, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> when Linus is talking to the children about Arthur and what the first few days there. And he says, he can't be lazing about. And Talia comes back and says, he's not lazing about. He works with Lucy to make sure he doesn't bring about the end of the world as we know it. (laughs) It's just very practical. (laughs) That's what I love about kids is because they haven't yet grown into their filter. They'll say whatever is in their head. They'll say everything. And it's always so weird. And I love that weirdness. And I just wish that we didn't chase that weirdness away when yeah. we get older. You know, we should be allowed to have kids, especially to be allowed to have stupid, crazy ideas and that that have no rhyme or reason other than it just was a thought that struck their minds. Well, TJ, this has been incredible. And, you know, I am going to run back uh, and read all of your previous work because oh, it's just like it, the this is just, uh, it's hitting, like you said, at, at the right time, but also with the right message and the way that you write is, is just so special. And so thank you for all the art and creativity you put in the world, because it, it means so much to all of us. But we do have one last question that we like to ask, and that is, yeah. what did we miss? Uh, what is it that you do a lot of these types of interviews, you get to speak to a lot of people about your work? What is, is there a story or a message or something that you're not often asked about that you would <laughs> Would like to share with us. Yeah, I think so. And it, it, not trying to end on too serious of a note, but if you live in the United States, you have probably heard um, over the last few months of the increase in book banning in the United mm-hmm. States. But here's the thing. They are not banning books that they really consider have objectionable material. They are banning books by queer authors. They are banning books by authors of color, particularly Black authors. And the whole idea of that is, unfortunately, they are equating stories to what they believe critical race theory is. And they are taking the books from hands of kids who might need them more than they could ever know. Here in my town, the local school board, one of the members on the school board brought up the fact that, well, you know what? We should just have an old fashioned book burning party. Oh my God. One of the other school board members agreed with them. Oh wow. We we are in 2022 and you have people in positions of power trying to decide what is acceptable and what is not. My the house in the Cerulean Sea has popped up on a few lists of, of books that people would like removed from curriculums and schools because of the fact that it has queer characters in it, it has the Antichrist character in it. But I will say this I got an email uh, a few months back from an 80 something year old woman who said that she had never written an author before, but she wanted to write an author. Uh, this time. She had just finished reading The House in the Cerulean Sea and that she had some issues. She did not like the fact that I had included the Antichrist. She ended the email by saying, but you know what? I will tell you, I did not mind the homosexuals. And you know what? I count that as a freaking win, man. (laughs) If I can get an 80-year-old woman who obviously had never read a book with gay people in it before and to have her finish her email with, I didn't mind the homosexuals. All right, good. Pass that forward. Pay it forward. Tell tell the people in your community, I do not mind homosexuals and let them come and be your neighbors, everything like that. Here's the thing. Words have power. And if you can change someone's mind on a topic that such as not minding homosexuals, then you know what? I will take that and I will take that with happiness because for all I know, this woman has been a homophobe for her entire life, for all I know. But in this book, 
She didn't like the Antichrist because she's religious, but she did not mind the homosexuals. Wow. And that's a good thing. Yeah. TJ, I could listen to your lessons all day long. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, I am so grateful for everything that you've done and everything that you'll continue to do. And that, again, that, that art is so important, as you mentioned, and that perspective and the fact that you don't give, you give these uh, children in this book a way where you can have fan art interpreted thousands of different ways because it's so important to be able to see yourself in pieces of literature or on TV. I, as a, a straight white guy, I have seen myself a lot uh, in media. <laughs> and so it is great to be able to see uh, so many uh, other people coming and the, uh, the amount of the perspective that you can get from these types of books. So thank you so much. And I can't wait to read your next book. It's going to be you. great. I'm very excited. I appreciate being here. Thank you so much. Words matter. I, I, can you say it any better than that? I can't. I'm not even going to try because he said it so perfectly. And, you know, the, this is what's so great about getting to talk to an author, right? So we we read the book and we really enjoyed it. We got to dig a little bit deeper, but then he shares with us some of these behind the scenes moments that he's having with fans and these incredible stories that he has just from writing this book and the experience he's had with readers. And Wow. I mean, when he shared that story about that, that woman who's in her eighties, my mind is blown. I, I, I just, I'm so impressed by him and, and his outlook on life and the things he shares in his books. And, and in the interview, I just, I really love him. <laughs> I, I know really it's do. just for my, for my Ted Lasso fans, he's someone that I want to take to the crown and anchor and just buy a few pints and yeah. just, just chat with about life and about other things. Uh, I, and I, I hope that he goes back and watches Ted Lasso. I think we roped him in. So, uh, sorry for the pun there, but you know, I think that, uh, if he does watch Ted Lasso, I said, open invitation. If you want to come back and, and talk uh, once you have that and kind of your thoughts on the series, uh, we would love to have him. It, it was just so uh, remarkable, the different stories that he told of the nine-year-old who was impacted by this book so much that he decided to write the author and make his own ch a Chauncey costume. And then the thousands of pieces of fan art that are just in the effect that that has on him. He talked about printing a lot of these emails out and kind of like having physical copies of these things that that fans have sent in. And it's just remarkable what he is able to do and the type of interactions that he's able to have basically through his art. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I have to say too about Chauncey, he really is such a great character. This whole book is very, very funny. In fact, I'm trying to sell it to some of my friends who, who read books. And then what I say is, okay, well, let me just start with the character Chauncey. Uh, if you listen to the audiobook, you know, he talks like this and he wants to be a bellhop <laughs> and, and they die laughing because that is hysterical. Um, I told someone, a friend of mine who's Catholic, I was like, okay, so the Antichrist is in it. And he was like, what? I'm like, no, 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 he's adorable. If you he's can great. imagine, yeah. he's, he's just, he says he's really dark, funny things. And once you get into the dark humor of it all, like it, it, it's just hysterical. So yeah, I just, I really love this book. I'm so glad that I got to listen to it and I'm so glad we got to talk to the, to, to TJ. He's, he's just incredible. And, uh, I hope he does enjoy Ted Lasso. Cause I, I really hope so too. It, it, you know, I loved talking to him and actually getting to meet the person behind these books. It's just, uh, it's just incredible. But don't you feel like when they, when they sign off from the interview, it's kind of like, okay, but like, when am I going to see you again? Cause we're friends now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I, I should say like behind the podcast, we kept talking for like five, 10 minutes there of just like different TV shows and different yeah, things. What are you so, watching? Well, we're watching this. What are you watching? <laughs> yeah. So it's just, uh, just great. And TJ, if you happen to be listening back, thank you for your time and for your talent. It, it means so much to us and to all of our lasso fans out there or anybody listening on the front row network main feed. First of all, if you're listening on the main feed and you haven't seen Ted lasso, let me tell you about a show. I like, no, uh, <laughs> won't do that now, but 
if you have other pieces of media that you feel are in that kind of lasso realm that you want to talk to us about or uh, suggest to us to go and check out, I think that that would be great if you would join our Peanut Butter and Biscuits Facebook page. We love interacting with listeners in there. Vanessa's in there as well, I should mention. So she's yeah. in that group. And then also you can follow us, of course, on Twitter at PBBFRN. And we do still have that Gmail address that we check out as well, Front Row Lasso at gmail.com. Just been great getting to have you here today, Vanessa. You know, it's funny in his dialogue, he mentioned a line that Lucy said, and I almost did it, but I decided not to. I almost said, you know, that sounds a lot like Encanto. Uh, I was like, that's too much. If I'm like, oh, actually, I also host a Disney podcast and this work also kind of ties in with that. I think that might've been TJ might've been like, you know what? Um, I think I need to sign off. (laughs) I think I need to sign off now. You have a good rest of your day. (laughs) So But it, it is just always so great to get a chance to podcast with you and to talk to you. And again, TJ, we can't thank you enough. But we got to get out of here. We're going to be bringing you some more special interviews and some special episodes. I believe what you'll be hearing next week to preview that Survivor is back on CBS. And we love Survivor at the Front Row Network. Um, a couple of the hosts have really gotten me into it over the years. There is a simulation online where you can drop in characters from other pop culture properties into a season of Survivor and see who makes it out. So we're going to do that. We're going to Brant Steel is the name of the software. And we are going to Brant Steel the Ted Lasso characters into Survivor. Lou Hare is going to be joining me for that. And it's going to be just a lot of fun. So look on that for your feed next week. But for now, for Peanut Butter and Biscuits, I am Craig. I'm Vanessa. And as always, be a goldfish. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Front Row Network, a proud Community Voices member of National Public Radio Illinois. For more from the Front Row Network, including our articles or our other dozens of shows, visit thefrontrownetwork.com or nprillinois.org slash programs slash network. You can also find us on social media by searching for the Front Row Network on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, and on Twitter at Front Row Reviews with a Z.